So today is a very important day in the life of this church. We are starting the book of Romans, which I have been excited about since day one. And I honestly can't believe that I, I have the privilege of teaching this book. This is probably, every book I say is my favorite book, so this is like my favorite book right now, and it will probably be 1 Corinthians when we get there, but I love this book. Uh, I don't know why God has considered me worthy to teach through it for you guys. Uh, it is such a powerful book, and I'm so excited. Today we're going to be doing an introduction. We're not going to go as detailed into lots of things. We're going to read the first 16 verses, some of which we'll also read next week, where we'll kind of give, give an overview of the book and kind of where we're headed. So let's just go ahead and read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, and I've just had church. We can all go home. That was it. That was amazing. Okay, verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine." I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the book of Romans. Thank you for what it has done throughout the centuries and what it means to us. Thank you for how clear it is and concise it is and practical it is and for how deep it can be and how wonderful and glorious it is and how it describes the gospel so clearly. God, I ask as we begin this book that our lives would never be the same after we go through this book together. And I mean that as dramatically as possible. I ask that you'd change us. I ask that you would transform us as we look at these things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the person who wrote this book is the Apostle Paul. His birth name was Saul. And just so you know, you may have heard, depending on where you're at, that Saul changed his name to Paul when he got saved. It's actually not true. The real truth is that 
Saul is a Hebrew name, and Paul was his Greek name. It's just the way it was. He's called Saul often by the churches in Israel, and he calls himself Saul while he's there. When Christ reveals himself to him on the road, on the way to Damascus in Israel, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But then as he went abroad and traveled to the other regions of the Roman Empire, he was known as Paul. And as he wrote this book to Rome, the Greek name is Paul. Kind of like how you have the Spanish name Jaime, which is James in English, how we say it. Or like someone's name is Jorge in Spanish, you might say George. Jaime is not James? No. What's Jaime? Jaime, I don't know, but it can be, but there are people that are called Jaime that, okay. that go by James. Okay. And also, Jorge, for example, George, we have that. Or like Matt, you might call him Matt and Eli if you live in this house uh, for some reason. Or like, or Johan is a German name. You might call them John in America. So it's the same thing. His name is Saul in Hebrew, but Paul in Greek. I'm going to call him Paul because most letters we have, all the letters we have, were written by him under the name of Paul because they're mostly the Greeks, and he is the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, which were all Greek-speaking back then. So anyway, that's his name. He was born in a, a place called Tarsus. It's in modern-day Turkey. Um, the time he was born, that was the capital in this Roman province, province called Cilicia, and it was very well-esteemed if you were born there. He actually got Roman citizenship. Paul had Roman citizenship because he was born into it. And you might remember in Acts, at one point he was talking to someone who said, you're a Roman citizen, I had to pay a ton of money to become a Roman citizen. Paul says, no, I was born a Roman citizen. So he was born that way, and then he was brought up in Jerusalem. He was brought there at a very early age to be part of this very elite school that he was part of under a man named Gamaliel, who was like one of the leading authorities of the time of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was this assembly of authority of all the rabbis of the Jews. They were like the, the highest of the high, and Gamaliel was a leader among them. And this was his school that Paul was studying under him. He was being trained up to be a Pharisee, which today we call, we kind of say Pharisee when we mean hypocrite, but that's just because of Jesus. The, the, the office of a Pharisee was an actual role. It was a job. It was a, an occupation you could have in that time. And a Pharisee was the most religious, most strict most elite, most legalistic, most respected office of religious Judaism at the time. And Paul was on his way up into that. He says at one point, of, as a, you know, according to the Jews, I was the strictest of the strict. I was the, the highest of the high. I was a Pharisee. I was at the top. I was raising in the ranks. That's where he was headed as a Jew before he got saved. He was very zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. What is interesting, because he says that, about the Jews later on in Romans, that because they didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah, they were still very zealous. They went about this act of doing church, and they were very religious and very traditional, and they, they did all the right things, but it was not according to knowledge. They didn't know their Messiah. They missed it, and that's where Paul was as well. And Paul would have stayed there if it wasn't for the grace of God. <clears throat> Just like many of us, um, we might have grown up in church, we might have grown up with this idea of Christianity, but it might be a zeal that's not according to knowledge. If you don't really know him, if you don't really know who God is, if you don't have an actual relationship with Jesus, and you're just going through the motions, then you're having a zeal that's not according to knowledge. 
and your life won't be transformed. You'll feel like you're always living up to others' expectations, never actually living life to the fullest because you're not sure what that means because you don't know the reason you were made. You don't know your Savior. That's where Paul was at. That's where many of us might be if we don't really know him. To give you an idea of, uh, to give you an idea of how zealous this Paul was, he actually persecuted the church originally because the Jews considered Christians to be this pagan cult and they wanted to be done with it, just, just wipe it away. And so Paul was actually so well known among the Jews that he could go to the high priest and get a handwritten letter from the high priest giving him authority to go into all these synagogues, find all the men and women who were believers in Christ and take them out to be imprisoned. He had that kind of authority. He was that well known in, in Israel at the time. So he was a very... He, he was rising in these ranks. Also, um, when this man named Stephen was martyred, he was stoned to death. He was one of the first deacons of the church in Jerusalem. He was stoned publicly. It says that Paul was there watching with hearty approval. So before he got saved, he was not only zealous, but he was a persecutor of the church. And if, if it wasn't for the grace of God, he would have stayed that way, and our New Testament would be 28% smaller. Because Paul, after he got saved, went around planting churches, preaching the gospel, giving his life to God. And then he wrote, like this book, Romans, he wrote many of those. Many of the books of the New Testament are written by Paul, about 28%. So if he hadn't come to Christ, if God hadn't revealed himself to Paul, we wouldn't have this book, Romans, to study today. And that's also similar to us. Unless God reveals himself to us, unless we actually get to see who God is for real... We don't know what God could do in our lives. We don't know the potential that God sees in us, the ways that God wants to use us in our families, in our friends, and in our workplaces, and at school. We're not going to get to see that potential unless God reveals himself to us. So my prayer as we go through this book is that God will reveal himself to all of us in a new and a fresh way in Christ that will enable us and empower us and inspire us and make us go crazy for the gospel. Um, one last thing about Paul, he was often known as a tent-making missionary. If you've heard that term, Paul coined it. Um, he was from Tarsus originally, like I've said, and Tarsus was known for having these goats up in the hills that had this nice fur that they would use for things like tents and, and ship sails and things. And so um, when he had to work for a living, what he did was that's the tr trade that he had learned was to make tents from that skin. And so at sometimes when he went to certain talents he would actually work to provide for himself while being a missionary. So that term, tent-making missionary, comes from him. So, when was the book written? Probably around A.D. 50, depending on how you do the math. Basically, they think that he was in Corinth when he wrote it. If you, might, if you were with us during Acts at all, there was this time on one of Paul's missionary journeys where he spent a few years in Corinth. And that was probably a good time to write some letters to churches. But also he writes in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 15, that he is, uh, in Romans 15, 25, that he's going to be going to Jerusalem soon. So he writes that to the church in Rome. And we know from the book of Acts that after Corinth, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. So it makes sense that he was in Corinth around AD 50. He had probably been a believer for over 20 years by this point. So after he got saved, which we saw in Acts 9, um, he's a believer and he's just serving God to the fullest, going from village to village, planting churches, preaching the gospel for over 20 years by this point. It's a lot of experience. Uh, 
is written to the church in Rome. It says in 1 verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. As far as the church there, all we know is that Rome was the center of the Roman Empire. So it was a very large place, very ethnically diverse, and also very dense. A lot of people in a small amount of room. They say maybe like over a million within a 10-mile radius at that time. So a lot of people, a very large population. And there were a lot of Jews living there as well. So the church that Paul is writing to has Jews and Gentiles in it. And we're going to see in some of the ways Paul writes that part of what he wants to handle is this issue of what, what does it mean to be a Jew and to be a Christian? And how can a church operate with Jews and Gentiles? Because the Jews had all this history and all these traditions and all these Hebrew scriptures they still wanted to hold on to, which was good. But then you had these Gentiles that had none of that history, that just heard about Jesus and followed him. And they weren't bound to the law of the Old Testament. They weren't bound to do all these traditions of so how, how can a church have unity with that kind of diversity? And we'll see that Paul tries to handle some of that later on in the book. So that's a pretty interesting topic. Um, we don't know how this church began, but we do know a couple of things. We know that the Jews from all over the place would come to Jerusalem a few times a year, especially during Pentecost, which is when that first revival happened. Remember, Peter stood up and preached and thousands got saved. So it could be that people who heard the gospel on that day, of those thousands, some were from Rome, and they went back and took that with them. Could be. Could also be in Acts chapter 8, when the heavy persecution happened and all the Christians scattered everywhere. And it says in Romans 8, that um, in 8 verse 4, that they went around preaching the gospel wherever they went. So it could have been a church that started throughout that effort as well. So we don't know how it began. We just know that it was already a church that was there and that Paul really wanted to visit them. Uh, we see, uh, as far as Paul's relationship with the church, he hadn't been there before when he writes this letter. He'd never been to them. He just always wanted to go. And we saw that in verse 10. He was praying to finally be able to visit them at some point. He longs to see them. He had this desire, this, this feeling in him that, I just want to go to Rome. I want to meet this church. And we can learn a lot from Paul about these couple of verses. This verse 10, verse 11, how he's, he's praying constantly for this thing. One of the things we can learn about this is the difference between our desires and God's will. Paul, for some reason, really wanted to go to Rome, and he's praying about it all the time, but we see that it wasn't God's time until much later. Paul hoped to go as a free man to visit the church there and to preach and to, to just be a blessing to the church, but what ends up happening at the end of Acts, he's going there as a prisoner, bound and chained, and he ends up being under house arrest, and he has a few years there where he's under house arrest and people can visit him, but he's not as free as he wanted to be visiting there. So it was God's will that he go there, but it was a different timing and a different circumstance than Paul thought. And I think what happens is this in prayer. As we pray and we seek to know God, we have desires. All of us do. We have ambitions. We have past, uh, pastors. We have passions, right? And we pray about those things. And what happens as we pray about things is that God, over time, begins to shape our desires. And we begin to be praying about things that are in line with His will, even if the timing is off. Why did Paul want to go to Rome so bad and not somewhere else? He never explains that, but clearly that was part of 
God's will for Paul because he does end up getting there. But we see things like in Matthew 6.33, we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things are added to us. So there's this order of things. We seek God, we seek his righteousness, and then he's giving us the things that we desire. We see in Psalm 34, verse 7, as we delight in the Lord, that he gives us the desires of our heart. So again, I think what's happening is that as we seek first the kingdom of God, and we seek his righteousness, and we delight ourselves in him, our desires are getting transformed into his desires, and our will is getting more in line with his will. And so Paul is just praying this and praying this, and eventually... We see that Paul's desire was God's desire. It was just a different circumstance than Paul had initially thought. So continue to have the passions you have. Continue to have the desires you have. But seek God first. Seek His kingdom first. Seek His righteousness. Delight yourself in Him. And then keep asking God for those things. And you will see either those things come to pass or you will see your desires changing. Something else we can learn about Paul from these verses is prayer life. He notices, he says in verse 9 that he's just constantly praying for them. How does he, how does he say it? He says, um, How unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests. You can't say that you're always unceasingly praying for somebody if you never pray, right? You, you can only say something like that if you had a pretty intense prayer life. So, something we can learn from Paul is that he had a pretty good prayer life. He was praying often and always, not only in certain de like dedicated times, but also I'm guessing throughout the day he was praying and just lifting up requests to God as he's going about his day and thinking often about those that he, he loves, he cares about, he wants to be with. And so what we can learn from him is that we should be the kind of people that pray often, pray all the time, not just dedicated like I'm going to go away now for 10 minutes and just dedicated prayer or a half hour or, or an hour or a day. There, that is good too, but also throughout the day, whatever we're doing, whether we're in school or we're cleaning our room or we're going to work, whatever we're doing, that we have this attitude of kind of upward thought towards God, like this is what I'm going through, this is what my need is, can you please help me with that? I'm praying for that person, I'm praying for this person. So Paul was that kind of person and we can be those kinds of people that we have a strong and consistent prayer life. Something else we can learn about Paul, which I think is really awesome, is he has a really neat um, pastoral heart for this church, even though he hasn't even met them yet. Well, why does he want to visit them? Does he want to visit so he can preach like a, just a knockout, great sermon so they'll hire him to be on staff and be their senior pastor? Does he want to visit them, does he want to visit them so that they can donate to his ministry or so that he can have one more church that like answers to him? Do you think the apostles kind of got together and sort of like ranked each other based on how many churches were like hanging off their belt. You know, I visited the church of Rome. I visited the church of Ephesus. Like that wasn't why he wanted to visit this church at all, right? What does he say? Why does he want to visit them? There's a lot of things. So he, um, starting in verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. So that is a part of the pastoral ministry is like, if I have nothing to give you, I shouldn't be up here, right? So I should have a desire to impart something to you as I'm doing this. That's a, a legitimate and a good and a healthy desire that you may be established because you're not supposed to be baby Christians for like the next 30 years, but you should be established on the truth of the word of God and be growing up and being blossoming into this amazing trees of all sorts of fruit hanging off you that God's just using you everywhere. You shouldn't be saved and then stay in that same state for the next 30 years. So a pastoral heart is to impart a gift to you, to impart things to you so that you can be established and grow and grow up in Christ 
So that's all good. And then he says, as he goes on, that he doesn't just want to impart a gift to them. He doesn't just want to see them be established. But he says in verse 12, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith. I love the fact that Paul, having been in ministry for so long and having all sorts of crazy fruit and thousands that have come to Christ through him, that he has this heart of like, I just want to be among you and I want to share my gift and let you be a step. But I want you to bless me too. I want my faith to bless you. I want your faith to bless me. I want to be encouraged by you too. We're all a family. And I love that heart because so often I think pastors have this mindset of like, I have to go elsewhere to get my encouragement because I've got to be a leader among these people. I've got to be above the bar and I've got to not have any problems and not have any, not make any mistakes, you know, not, not show any kind of weakness. So when I suffer, I'm going to go over here and talk to my other friend, but my church is going to just think I'm perfect forever. And so what happens is you have these pastors, you put them on pedestals, and then when they do fall, everyone's faith is stumbled because of it. Paul had this different approach of like, I'm not trying to be holier than thou. I'm not trying to be put up on a pedestal. I know I've got gifts. I want to impart them to you, but I also want to be encouraged by you. I want to be among you. I want to see your faith. I want to be encouraged by your faith. See what God's doing in your life. And that's also part of the pastoral heart. It's like last Sunday was right just to sit back there and like try to not talk while Eric's you know, asking questions and, and like not pass notes and not get up to get a snack. But it was great to like feel like I was part of the church, not not just teaching. And and um and I love teaching. I love doing this. But I but it's not what I don't want is to just be like, I am a teacher and you all come in and listen to me and hear my words and don't question anything and then go on with your own life. So I want to like be among you and be encouraged by your faith. And I want us all to be growing together as a family, like really in our lives together, not you all going through your Christian thing over here, but don't go to Eli because he's, you know, he would never understand, or he he might judge me for the problem that I'm dealing with. Or, you know, I can't call Lindsay because she's just awesome and she could never understand the thoughts that I had today. Like we don't want to be those kinds of people. We want to be a family and open and honest and real with each other. And so I like that Paul says he like, I want to come to you, I want to impart a gift to you, but I also want to be encouraged by you, and I want our faith together. We're we're all a family, so. We can learn a lot from those couple of verses. Now, the main theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. It is the main theme, and the book is even structured that way. It's it's very phenomenal how this worked out that way. Um, you know, we were in Acts together, and I remember talking to you guys about how the you know as Christians we we say we believe the gospel, and we're commanded to be able to share the gospel, but often we don't know what the word gospel means, like. Sometimes we think the word gospel describes a certain style of music. That's gospel music. Or we just put the word gospel on everything like, you know, gospel-centered, this gospel-centered, that gospel-centered, gospel-centered coffee shop, gospel-centered skateboarding, gospel-centered. Like, you know, we just, we throw the word out there, but we often don't know what it means. And the word gospel means horrible news, right, Izzy? No. Oh, it means good news. She's right. It means good news. The whole book of Romans is about good news. That's amazing. So as we were studying through Acts, it became clear that, number one, we need to know what the word gospel means. It also became clear that we have to understand what the good news is in order to believe it. You can't say you believe the gospel if you don't know what that is. But it also became clear that you have to understand the gospel in order to be able to share it with somebody. If someone says, what do you believe? Oh, yeah, I go to church. Why? Oh, you know, I like it. 
feels good, you know. They're nice. They're they got a Keurig machine now. <laughs> but what do you believe? Well, I believe God and Jesus, you know, the Bible. And okay, but why? Because well, you know it's stuff. Like no, we should know. We should be able to explain something about the good news. Why is it good? Why is it news? What's this whole thing about? It also became clear that the gospel is really simple. And I love how simple it is. And it's also clear, because it's so simple, that Satan wants to complicate it and confuse us. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, again, Paul writing later on, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. This is a simple faith. That doesn't mean it's an easy faith. Simple and easy are two different things. Our faith is simple, but living it out can be quite a challenge. But it's simple, and we often can get complicated and confused and technical and start arguing about things that are kind of secondary issues, and the church divides over these things when the gospel is simple. And I hope that as we go through Romans, we're going to be reminded of that simplicity, and we're not going to get lost in tangents that are confusing or complicated. Also in Acts, it became clear that the gospel is foundational. It's simple and it's also foundational. We build the rest of our faith on top of this. The gospel is what you have to understand as a believer before you even start thinking about, you know, when's the rapture going to happen? Or were there really 12 tribes or were there 14? Because, you know, that one guy had two sons and they kind of got grafted in or whatever. All that extra stuff and the weird genealogies and why is it the Matthew and the Luke genealogy is different? And oh, what does that mean about Jacob and Esau and love one and hate the other? All, the, all that stuff, you have to know the gospel first. It's foundational. We build everything else on top of it. The gospel is a hill worth dying on and millions have done so since Christ came. They have died for this. It's, it's serious and it's real. It's simple, but it's foundational. And there are some challenging passages that we're going to look at in Romans that I think are made easier once we remind ourselves what the real gospel is and we don't give any of that up as we study Romans. We don't create some new weird theology that ends up giving up something we know to be true in the gospel. In Hebrews 5, verse 12, it says... For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What that means is that there is an order at which we study the Bible. There is a process we should be going through when we study. And we don't begin studying the Bible by looking at the most complicated things we can think of and then arguing with all of our friends about it. That's not where you start. And so what the writer of Hebrews was saying was, you guys, the church he was writing to, you have a need to be reminded again of the elementary principles because you're not ready for solid food yet. And us as a church, before we get into more complicated theology and doctrine, Especially in Romans, we could go a lot deeper than we're going to go. What I want to do is stay shallow enough in the text that we can read it for what it says, for what it means, but not lose sight of those elementary principles so we have a strong, solid foundation. So what is this good news? 
Paul summarizes it like this. In verses 1 through 5, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now here it goes, I love this. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So that's a pretty cool summary of the gospel. A lot of that should be familiar to you because we've gone through Acts and a lot of those themes kind of came out. But we had summarized it differently. I sort of broke down the gospel into nine elements. And we're going to keep looking at these through the whole book of Romans. And they were God. We have to know who God is. Man. We've got to know about ourselves and why we're here and what happened and the problem of sin and all that. Jesus. We've got to know who he is. It's kind of important. The death and the resurrection and the ascension. Those three things really matter. They're all really important. We've got to understand what they mean. The Holy Spirit is always talked about in the gospel. He's a very important part of the gospel, a very important part of the Godhead. He is a person. He's alive and active today, and when you believe in Jesus, you are given the Holy Spirit. The Bible says so. We believe it. There's a conclusion. So what do we conclude from all these different elements of the gospel? which is the whole thing about repenting and believing the gospel and following after Jesus. And then the ninth thing is, what's next? Like, how do we now live after believing the gospel? Romans, I believe, is set up that way in its structure, which is kind of cool. It starts off in the first chapter. We're going to be looking at who God is, what happened with man, the problem of sin, going the first couple of chapters in, how there's no one righteous and we, we can't save ourselves. And then we're going to get into Jesus and the death and the resurrection and the ascension. And, and Paul kind of explains why it's faith in him that gives us that righteousness. And therefore, we now have peace to God. And Paul is going to mention the Holy Spirit, so we're going to do that too. And then the conclusion, all that, you know, we're going to get there in Romans. And then starting or after that point in Romans, maybe like 9 or 10 or so, we start getting the practical aspects. Like, what, what does it mean now to be a believer? What does it mean to live in this faith? And the rest of the book of Romans, we're going to just be kind of looking at different aspects of, of Christianity, of the faith, of how to live as a believer. So that's where we're headed. Um, and the last thing that I want to say today, it's a shorter sermon, it's just the introduction, is back in verse 15, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. And we're going to look at the rest of that next week as well, why he says Jew and also the Greek and all that stuff. But for today, what I want to conclude with is verse 15. Paul wants to go to a church that already believes and he's eager to preach the gospel to them. And I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. And you as believers, no matter how long you've been a believer, should be eager to receive it. The gospel is not something we ever graduate from. It's something we must always be reminded of constantly because it's the purest, most simple aspect of our faith that will set us free from a lot of the clutter that builds up over time in our lives. Getting reminded of the simple gospel we believe, getting reminded of all that God's given us in Christ and all that we have now as believers. So I'm eager, and I want you to be eager, and I want you to be praying for me as I prepare these sermons and praying for yourselves and praying for the church as we go through this, that God will be making himself alive to us as we study this. And as far as verse 16, 
Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because he knew it was the power of God of salvation. We should not be ashamed of the gospel. If we really understand the gospel, we won't be ashamed. It's the power of God to salvation. So it's, there's power in this, and we're going to feel it. Who's that guy? Oh, I can feel it. Kronk. It's like we're going to feel it Kronk style. Okay, so that's it. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for where we're headed. God, I thank you so much that you, you created us in your image, that you desire to have fellowship with us, that you want us to know you. And I think that even though we rebelled against you and turned against you, and even though we had no way of paying off the debt stacked against us, I think that you sent your son to die for us and to raise for us and to now live for us on your right hand, interceding for us. We think that you give us the Holy Spirit, that we can know we're saved, that you seal us with your spirit, that it's a, a confirmation in our hearts that we are yours. We thank you, God, that now we can live for you and that it's powerful enough to change our lives from, from this day, for the rest of our lives, that this gospel message can transform us. So I ask you that as we go through this, that you would be teaching us these things, you'd be reminding us of the simplicity that's in the gospel, and that you'd be encouraging us to live harder for you in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness to the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.